This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Fossil fuel producers are expanding production while promising to reduce emissions. They plan to keep mining and pumping carbon past the year 2050. The 2023 Production Gap Report shows brain-breaking disconnects in word and deed. Co-lead author Michael Lazarus explains. Then record-high CO2 emissions from boreal fires in 2021. Wildfires were worse in 2023, of course. Dr. Philippe Sieyes, Associate Director of a French Climate Lab, tells us where all that burned carbon goes, heating the planet. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Freaky heat waves continue in late 2023. The fall cooker in the eastern Mediterranean moved on. Now, well before the peak of summer in the southern hemisphere, several countries are smashing heat records. Brand new nighttime highs, the worst ever recorded in South America, happened last week. As Matthew Todd tweeted or X'd on November 14th, Brazil gripped by unbearable, unprecedented heat wave. Red alerts have been issued for almost 3,000 towns and cities across Brazil, which have been experiencing an unprecedented heat wave. Records have been broken in areas including the city of Rio de Janeiro, where temperatures felt as high as 52.5 degrees C, that's 126.5 Fahrenheit. More than 100 million people have been affected by the heat, which is expected to last until the end of the week. The BBC has a news report on it. Brazil, health warnings as country gripped by unbearable heat wave. Find a link in my blog at ecoshock.org. According to ABC News, it was even worse than that. They say, quote, the heat index, a combination of temperature and humidity, hit 58.5 degrees Celsius, 137 Fahrenheit, Tuesday morning in Rio, the highest index ever recorded there, end quote. I've been to Rio. It's on the sea. It is still spring there. Anyone without air conditioning, and that's millions of people, they're afraid for their lives. And that is where we start as America, Russia, and Saudi Arabia, Canada, everybody with a coal mine or a well is investing heavy profits into far more production. Governments of those countries not only approve, they subsidize it, brag about it, militarize it, and generally enable a very dangerous climate shift. Whatever else you hear from COP28, the climate summit, those encouraging green words, in the real world, Big money is investing more in coal, oil, more natural gas, more pipelines, more gas ships, more ports, more, more, more greenhouse gases to cook the planet. Somehow, that must never happen. Here is the story. Radio EcoShot. When crushing heat, fires, and storms wreck the planet, it's good to have a plan. The top 20 energy-producing countries do have a plan. They're going to make it worse, much worse. Forget the green chatter from politicians and conferences. You won't believe what your country is doing. Burn it till it drops. That's the plan. And who says so? The United Nations and the Stockholm Institute are part of a group publishing the 2023 Production Gap Report. It is simple. Here is what countries promise to do to reduce emissions. 
Here are the new energy projects approved by those same nations. New production is twice what a safe climate can bear. Michael Lazarus is the U.S. Center Director at the Stockholm Environment Institute. He is one of the two lead authors of the new report released in November. From Seattle, Michael Lazarus, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me, Alex. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, said, quote, Governments are literally doubling down on fossil fuel production. That spells double trouble for people and planet. He is talking about your report. What does your new analysis tell the public and leaders at the upcoming COP28 climate summit? One of the main findings of our report is that when you add up what governments are planning to do to increase coal, oil, and gas production, it adds up to twice as much production as would be consistent with the 1.5 degree warming limit that is incorporated into the Paris Agreement, uh, which hundred and basically all countries agreed to back in Paris. What do you mean by production gap, and how was this report compiled? What we did is we looked at two quantities. First, we looked at the latest report by the International Panel on Climate Change, which is the preeminent international body that looks at uh, climate science and looked at the scenarios developed for that latest sixth assessment report. From that, we estimated the amount of coal, oil, and gas that would be consistent with meeting a 1.5 degree and a 2 degree target. What countries agreed to in the Paris Agreement was to keep warming well below 2 degrees centigrade and aiming for 1.5 degrees. And these scenarios were developed by teams across multiple countries. And from that, we derived those amounts that would be consistent, which is a decline, uh, a significant decline. In fact, what that points to is the need to basically phase out the use of coal largely by 2040 and to decrease the uh, production and use of oil and gas by about three quarters by 2050. And then we compared those amounts with what countries are putting forth in their plans for fossil fuel production or their forecast for fossil fuel production. And we added those up across, we looked across 20 of the largest fossil fuel producers, and we made an estimate for the rest, which was only, which was less than 20%, and we compared the two. And that's how we ended up with this gap. Countries, governments are quite important in terms of the future production of fossil fuels. Over half of coal, oil, and gas is controlled and produced by state-owned entities, uh, state-owned oil, gas, and coal companies. And in other countries, government forecasts basically send the signal to private sector producers in terms of what to aim for. So we think these are very important signals that countries send, and they're not the right signal. Okay, let's dive right into some fossil fuel plans. The U.S. continues to be the top oil and gas producer in the world, and it is fourth in coal production. Michael, what has America promised when it comes to reducing emissions? What are the American targets? In 2021, when the Biden administration came in, they updated U.S. commitments to reduce 
greenhouse gas emissions, which is largely carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels, and in its nationally determined contribution to the UN Framework Agreement on Climate Change, they set a target of reducing emissions by 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. So that's the commitment. And indeed, the Biden administration has helped put into place a number of policies that could get the U.S. close to that. But we read further on in your production gap report, and I'm going to quote this here, the U.S. Energy Information Administration forecasts that oil production will reach and remain at record high levels of 19 to 21 million barrels per day from 2024 to 2050, while gas production is projected to continually increase, reaching 1.2 trillion cubic meters in 2050, end quote. That doesn't sound like an America that's going to be reducing its emissions any. How do you see it? Well, that's precisely the disconnect. I do think the U.S. is on a trajectory to reduce its emissions significantly. The problem is that it's not on a trajectory to reduce its production of fossil fuels significantly. So what does that mean? The U.S. is now, as you pointed out, the number one producer of oil and gas. And according to those projections, it will stay that way uh, out to 2050. Remarkably, the base case of the Energy Information Administration's annual energy outlook yeah, pro projects 20% increase in oil and gas production. So what's going on is the U.S. is going to become more and more of an exporter of oil and gas under such a scenario. And to what market are they aiming to produce this? That's a good question. That works fine in a world where we're not, the rest of the world is doing nothing to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, or no other country is trying to produce that amount to meet import demands in other countries. But other countries are planning to do similarly, and that's the problem. We overinvest in fossil fuel infrastructure, and it undermines our ability to meet those very goals that we're aiming for. It's pretty hard to get accurate figures out of the second largest fossil fuel producer, Russia. According to your report, Russia is the sixth largest coal exporter, the second largest oil exporter, the second largest gas exporter, uh, at least from 2005 to 2021. Does the 2023 report include losses in the European market due to the Ukraine situation, or has Russia managed to keep expanding its gas exports anyway, just to different customers? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the Russian Federation appears to be seeking out uh, strengthening its uh, other markets. It's reorienting its production, and it said so in a number of decrees and, and presidential announcements towards the Asia-Pacific market away from Europe, trying to target markets in places like China and elsewhere. Indeed, you know, pipelines are in the works, uh, new rail lines for coal exports as well. So it's just a matter of seeking other markets to make up for lost export capability to Europe. Again, it's the intentions. These are the intentions of countries. Whether they will be realized fully or not, that's a good question. And if investments go forward and the markets dry up, which would be good to see across the board, that however, has impacts on the communities that have invested in those export expansion facilities. So Russia is seeking to export more and more gas and coal. 
Well, here's a chilling little sentence from the report. It, it sounds innocuous, but what it says is, there is no public discussion indicating that the government of the Russian Federation agencies or state-owned enterprises have considered the need or are planning to wind down fossil fuel production or consumption. Well, isn't that true of many of the top producing countries you studied? Yes. What most climate policy and actions have focused on for years, and that's partly why we decided to undertake this report, are focused on efforts to reduce emissions and emissions only. And while that's important because it's the emissions that cause uh, warming and heating climate that we're seeing and experiencing, production is absolutely essential as well because the more you seek to produce, the more you undermine your ability to achieve those emissions goals. And so we see across many countries that the conversation hasn't really begun in earnest about what we can do to wind down production as we're also trying to, at least saying we're going to in most countries, wind down the use of fossil fuels and the emissions associated with them. So we're not really even talking about doing the things we most need to do. Let's move on to China. As the world's largest economy and greenhouse polluter, China really matters for the climate for all of us. They're kind of a mixed bag. On the one hand, China just approved three large new coal mines, but they stopped financing coal power stations overseas. China has more renewable energy than anybody by far, and yet your report finds China provided, quote, more energy sector loans to public entities than any other lender in the world. Michael, should we find hope or despair in China's climate rule? Uh, well, <laughs> hope or despair, um, hope and despair is kind of is a great way to summarize the way we should be looking at the challenge of um, avoiding dangerous climate change, right? Very few countries are without those kinds of contradictions. Yes, as you pointed out, you know, China's a world leader on renewable energy at, at this point. What you pointed out about public sector lending, that, that is a bit of a historical legacy over the past two decades of their Belt and Road Initiative, which sought to build out coal plants and coal infrastructure and oil and gas facilities in many, many countries across the world. They are no longer leaning heavily into that as they have before. So that's what we're seeing. Okay, one sign of hope is that across the board, countries, for the most part, have moved away from public finance for fossil fuels. We're not there yet completely, and it still outpaces uh, lending for and finance for clean energy, but it's moving in the right direction. So, yeah, co the contradictions abound, and that's why we do the report that we do. My own country, Canada, is pretty disappointing. The government claims they're climate leaders. I mean, big green talk coming. Meanwhile, they waste public money building a multi-billion dollar pipeline to export dirty tar sands oil. And they approve tons of new gas projects, and they're still subsidizing the producers. And worst of all, your uh, your report finds, quote, Canada has historically been one of the largest international public financiers of fossil fuels. So there we go. Talk to us about the schizophrenic position of Canada in the greenhouse gas arena. Yeah, there. Are, I mean, I'm glad you pointed out, because there are few more schizophrenic countries on, uh, in terms of climate as, as you find in Canada because of the, 
the points you raised and we get into in this report. What's, what's interesting, you know, in, in the Canada Energy Regulators report this past year, did some scenarios of what production uh, in Canada would look like under a net zero emissions world. That's an emissions world along the lines of what we are talking about aiming for, the 1.5 degrees, the Paris Agreement. One of the few that's charted out what that might mean. Is Canada on that course? No, not not yet. Is uh, Canada continuing to build out, you know, export facilities for natural gas and seeking new pipelines to expand production? Uh, yes. And so how you reconcile that is you need to have a holistic policy that aligns your production strategy with your consumption strategy, your emission strategy, and there's work to do. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Our guest is Michael Lazarus. He is the director of the U.S. Center of the Stockholm Environment Institute, and he's also the co-lead author of the new report, 2023 Production Gap. Let's go to Saudi Arabia. Half the gross domestic product of Saudi Arabia is based on oil and gas production. That's half of all their wealth. The Saudis are not an open information society. What did your team manage to find out about their plans for more oil and gas production? Yeah, one of the challenges we face in doing this report is a lack of transparency. Good luck finding out what countries are thinking about supporting, even in times subsidizing in terms of fossil fuels and fossil fuel production. In the case of Saudi Arabia, we were able to find some government projections by looking at their bond prospectus for the bond prospectus of Saudi Aramco, the state-owned oil producer that produces almost all of Saudi Arabia's uh, oil. And from that, we were able to discern what the plans are in Saudi Arabia, which is is interesting because it's an expansion of oil and gas production. You know, Saudi Arabia remains on top of all the Gulf countries, some of the cheapest oil to produce. We've heard views from government and other officials uh, that they hope to be, uh, quote, last man standing in a world that turns serious attention to reducing the use of fossil fuels. And they're also investing in economic diversification strategies. They're also investing in carbon capture strategies. We could talk a little bit more about that if you'd like. At the same time, they're planning to remain dominant player in, in oil and gas. Well, oil particularly, and ideally more and more gas, according to their strategies. Well, again, the Saudi government promises to slash emissions. Uh, They talk about 278 million tons, but it's from the way they produce, from their fields, not from shipping their oil and gas overseas. And Norway's doing the same. They say, well, look, a green offshore oil platform, and and they mean the energy to run the well comes from renewables onshore. Well, that's great, but it's a dribble of greenwashing, really, while this fire hose of emissions from their products rolls on it. It feels a bit like a trick. Your thoughts, Michael? I, I wouldn't necessarily view it as green washing per se. You know, if you look at what 
the you know IPCC says, you look at the International Energy Agency, you look at a lot of what is called for by climate advocates across the world, as well as a major reduction in the methane emissions that occur, methane being a very powerful greenhouse gas that occur when you produce and deliver oil, gas, as well as, as coal. And so there are some important efforts, uh, as well in, as CO2 emissions, from using lots of energy to produce oil and gas, as you know, from, uh, you know, the oil or tar sands in Alberta, which uh, requires a significant amount of energy to produce. So reducing the emissions from producing these fuels is extremely important. The thing is, it's not an either-or. It's not a substitute for reducing the actual production. Both have to, have to happen hand-in-hand. Hand. And we've seen a number of initiatives uh, around the world, the Net Zero Producers Forum, uh, Global Methane Pledge, which are about reducing those emissions from producing fossil fuels, but they don't say a word about reducing the production itself. And so... There's a missing piece there. So um, it, you could argue it's a distraction, but I think, you know, there's a legitimate reason to focus upstream, but not exclusively. If we are looking for signs of a green light at the end of the tunnel, maybe it could be in Germany. What are the Germans saying, and are they getting closer towards a, an emissions-reduced future? Germany has been at the forefront of what folks refer to as um, just transitions in the coal sector. Just transitions meaning ensuring that communities that have been heavily reliant upon production or the revenues from production of uh, fossil fuels um, are either compensated or uh, invested in so that um, those communities do not suffer economically from a transition. And so they set up a a just Transitions Commission years ago. Um, they're on their way out in terms of coal in principle, but they still have a ways to go. And Australia is the world's fifth largest coal producer and the seventh largest natural gas producer. They import oil, by the way. What has Australia promised for 2030, and how can they possibly meet that when they've announced all kinds of new coal projects and oil and gas projects? Uh, good question again. You know, so Australia is committed. In fact, they raised their emissions reduction target under the new government to 43% below 2005 levels by 2030, which is a step in the right direction. They've also enacted um, what's called the safeguard mechanism, a scheme that could help to reduce the emissions associated, as we were just talking about, producing fossil fuels themselves, which is quite significant in Australia because fossil fuel production is such an integral part of their economy. And you mentioned a number of projects in the works. I mean, that's going to be difficult. Some of the largest coal mines have been planned and built out in Australia in recent years. Lots of investment in coal and uh, gas export infrastructure. It's not clear if all those projects you just noted, that we noted in the report, were clear that, you know, it's not clear that they'll all materialize. But this is another case of what is the future you are betting on. If you bet on a future of increased demand for coal and gas or even continued demand elsewhere, you're betting on 
a future and a world which is not consistent with those kinds of pledges that you've made at the government level and consistent with the kind of climate we want to live with in long term. So again, it's, a, it's this risk of what we call lock-in, carbon lock-in, where once you make the investments, it's very hard not to, not to continue taking advantage of those investments. And if you don't, then you create this risk of financial risk of stranded assets, as well as stranding those workers, communities that are relying upon them. So it's kind of a, a double-edged sword that cuts against you both ways from a climate standpoint, from a community and economic justice standpoint. A lot of times governments push climate responsibility away from the multinational companies towards the consumer. You know, you and I should pay a carbon tax at the pump. That'll do it. But I've looked over your career, and over the past couple of decades, you've consistently called for tracking producers, and that's what you're doing now. How important is that? Well, if you've looked at what I've worked on, I've worked on a lot of the focus of what I was doing for many years was on reducing the use and consumption of fossil fuels, which I still think is sort of first and foremost what, what policy needs to drive. Um, that has to be at the foundation of any country or community's efforts to grapple with the climate crisis. Um, and by that, I say, I say government policies or even just other large-scale policies, not individual behavior alone, right? So there's been efforts to over-focus on what individuals can do, which is, is super important. We, we do, as individuals, need to do all we can do, but it's not going to be what solves this, this problem. And so that has been a distraction. What we have been working on together, what I've been working on with, together with colleagues for 10 years or so or longer, is making sure that the focus is also on the production side of fossil fuels. That had been a missing component of climate policy. I think it's important to bring that to the mix to confront decision makers with the sort of contradictions that you can't really have it both ways. You can't be promoting the expansion of fossil fuel production and trying to achieve climate targets at the same time. And so I think it's absolutely important that it gets integrated. And even now the International Energy Agency calls for the similar types of efforts. If we don't coordinate the wind down of production with the wind down of using fossil fuels, We'll create supply gluts. We'll create um, shocks to the market, not to mention undermine our ability to do what we're trying to do to keep climate change from getting far worse than it is today. I had a little bit of a hard time after reading this report. Uh, in the field of psychology, according to Wikipedia, cognitive dissonance is the perception of contradictory information and the mental toll of it. I mean, just realizing that major governments and their fossil fuel partners plan to accelerate greenhouse gases right into the teeth of this climate that's already more extreme than we've ever seen. Did you find this work a bit hard on your mental health? I'm more concerned about the mental health of those who are suffering the damages of climate change or worrying about the future it will bring. I'm not too concerned about studying these issues. I think it's important to confront decision makers with that dissonance, to reckon with it, and to start aligning. It's been far too easy to separate, to compartmentalize what, to use another uh, term, common, let's use term in, in, in psychology these days, 
to compartmentalize what for countries, for decision makers, to compartmentalize what they're doing on fossil fuel production. Because, and there's understandable reasons for that. Uh, well, understandable to some extent. There's rationales for it. Because countries want to reduce import dependency. They want to project geopolitical strengths. They, there are vested interests that are in their ears about these kinds of issues. But that, that's not enough. That's, that, when you add it all up together, we end up with a production gap. And we end up undermining what we're trying to do to address climate change. So, but I just hope for the, the mental health of all your listeners that world leaders start to reckon on the, on the production side as well as on the emission side, and that will give us even more hope for uh, getting out of this mess as best we can. Where can listeners get a copy of the 2023 Production Gap Report? We have a website, productiongap.org. Just enter it there. You'll find the executive summary. You'll find a short little uh, video to sort of give you a sense of the overall messages of the report. Yeah, thanks for giving us the opportunity to share some of the findings we've had this year. From the U.S. Center of the Stockholm Environment Institute, we've been speaking with Director Michael Lazarus. We've been talking about the new report, 2023 Production Gap. You can get your copy at productiongap.org or follow up links in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Listeners know I follow wildfires closely. You do that when you live in fire country. My country, Canada, burned more than ever before, and that is saying a lot. Carbon and black carbon from those fires are enough to push more heating on the world. They also changed the albedo of the planet, reflection of the sun's energy. Finally, I found scientists asking that very question. How do the new extreme wildfires change the climate? You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. With your host, Alex Smith. For decades, we worried the burning Amazon could tip world climate. Closer to home, the great boreal forest across the planet's far north, it is burning hard. Where is all that carbon going? Will it make global warming worse? Our guest is co-author of the March 2023 paper, Record High CO2 Emissions from Boreal Forests in 2021. Dr. Philippe Sies is Associate Director of the Laboratoire de Sciences du Climat et de l'Environnement, and that climate lab is located at the Institut Pierre-Simon Laplace at top-level research institute west of Versailles. Dr. Sies is a physicist, and he specializes in the global carbon cycle and climate change. From France, Philippe Sies, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Good morning, welcome. How far from the average emissions this century was the 2021 boreal wildfire season? What made it special and worth the study? Well, 21 was a particularly dry and hot year during the summer. And what makes it special is that it was drought at the same time in uh, northern Canada and also in northern Russia, where most of the boreal forests lies. 
And the fact that we have a synchronized drought over those two large areas covered by forest caused uh, exceptionally large fire emissions of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's strange that the 2021 boreal fires, they were so far out of the ordinary, a bigger change, you say, than any change in tropical fires this century, and yet we heard practically nothing about it. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that there is much more awareness in the media when fires happen in North America compared to when, when, when they happen in, in Siberia. Siberia is a remote we don't have good relations with Russia. So everything which happens in this very remote part of the world is often overlooked. And in that year, in fact, fires in Siberia were particularly extreme, and they contributed a lot to the emission anomaly. And you say 80% of the carbon released by fires is taken up by vegetation in subsequent growing seasons, and only 20% remains in the atmosphere longer, adding to the warming burden. But I'm wondering, is that still true for a couple of reasons? When never-before-seen huge fires may produce CO2 more than previous fires, and other climate factors like drought may change the landscape so the former rate of uptake just does not happen, it may not regrow, could these numbers change in a warming world? You are completely right. We are living in a changing world. So what we could say about the time it takes or it will take for the forest to recover its carbon, is based on the climate of the past. And we don't know, of course, how dry will be the climate in the future and how it will slow down the recovery of forest or even change the forest types that we'll have in the boreal regions. We see in North America, for instance, that a lot of spruce forests are progressively replaced by birch or aspen forests because of different climate conditions ongoing. How does the amount of added atmospheric carbon from wildfires compare to the emissions from fossil fuels? Is the wildfire addition enough to matter? Yes. During that particular year, it mattered a lot, because the amount of CO2 that was expelled to the atmosphere during the fire was as high as the amount of fossil CO2 which is emitted by uh, a large economy. So that was very significant uh, during that particular extreme year. And we see that again in 2023, when we have also exceptionally high fires in Canada. Northern wildfires in recent years have been frightening. When we see the images of them, it's amazing. They seem more extreme. Are they? Yes, I believe so. I believe that we see a surge of megafires, very extreme events, in particular in the boreal regions. That seems to be above what we have seen in, in the recent uh, decades. We know the Arctic is warming around four times faster than the rest of the planet. Does it matter that boreal fire emissions are occurring in the far north? Does location of emissions matter? Well, CO2 that is emitted by any part of the globe is very quickly dispersed in the atmosphere, uh, where it causes uh, additional warming. So the location where the emissions take place for the carbon dioxide emission do not matter too much. However, fires also warm the climate because behind them, they leave a black surface. And when the soil surface is black, it catches up the sun radiation 
and it further warms the surface. So in respect to the change of soil color, uh, having black soils in the Arctic in summer after fires is a cause of additional warming. And for this, yes, it matters, the fact that it is uh, in the north compared to, to the tropics. I guess the darker soil, if it gets hotter, might actually uh, start to melt some of the permafrost below it. This is actually true, because in some regions there is permafrost, means permanently frozen ground, and obviously you have a lot of heat and energy which is produced at the soil surface when you have an extreme fire. So this helps melt the soil ice and further decompose the carbon which is in the soil. And sometimes this permafrost layer will not recover. Indeed, in boreal forest, most of the carbon is not contained in the trees or in the roots or in the leaves. It is contained in the soil. And part of the soil is also burnt when you have an extreme fire. Especially if there's peat involved. So fires have two contradictory effects in the atmosphere. At first, the smoke, which can cross a whole continent, as we saw this year, it cools the lands below the, just as though they were clouds, really. Those aerosols rain out within weeks, though, and that leaves the carbon dioxide lasting thousands of years. With wildfire impacts, how does the cooling versus the warming compare? That's a very good question. I think most of the effect of wildfires is actually directed to more warming because the aerosol particles which are produced by wildfires are called black carbon or soot. And this type of particles uh, has the effect to warm the climate. The only effect through which fire may cool the climate partly is the fact that when you replace a dark forest in winter by a bare soil which has burned, which is now covered by snow, the snow, of course, is whiter, it's brighter than the dark forest, and this acts to, uh, to cool the, the climate after fire happens. This is the only effect through which fire can actually have a, a climate cooling effect, which opposes the warming effect of the particles and the greenhouse gases that they emit to the atmosphere. How does carbon from wildfires in northern boreal forests compare with carbon emissions from famous tropical forests like the Amazon? Well, it depends on the year, because in the year 2019, for instance, there was no special activity, no huge boreal fire, and it was an extreme year for burning in the tropical forest. And more recently, boreal fires have been larger than uh, tropical fires. Uh, there is more carbon in, in, the, in the trees of tropical forests because they are bigger. So when they burn, the burning of the trees produces more carbon. But on the other hand, as I said before, there is much more carbon in the soil of boreal forests than in the soil of tropical forests. And therefore, if the fire is burning part of the soil in the boreal region, it contributes to emit more CO2 than if it burns in tropical region. But you think boreal fires may become a more important driver of climate change than burning in the Amazon, the Congo, or Indonesia? I believe so because, you know, the Amazon and the Congo and Indonesia should not burn. Most of the fires are because humans set fires during the dry season. But those are wet forests, and wet tropical forests should not burn. 
except for human you know, degradation and activity. On the other hand, it seems inevitable that when the climate is extremely dry during several consecutive days or weeks, and when it's extremely hot in the Arctic and the boreal zone, it seems inevitable that more and more extreme boreal fires will continue to happen because their, their occurrence is really related to the, the dryness and, and, and the temperature of the climate during the summer. And we know that the climate has been warming a lot in this region. Yeah, it's kind of a mystery in a way because the predictions for the climate were that there would be more precipitation in the boreal forest, that the northern areas would become wetter, and yet we're seeing more forest fires. I talked to Dr. Michael Flanagan about this from the University of Alberta, and he said, well, look, it only takes three days of really hot weather to dry those thin northern soils out and then you're ready for fires, and we're getting more lightning than we used to get. So I, I guess it makes sense, even though there might be more precipitation, we still could have more fires. Yes, it's possible indeed. And in fact, you know, most of the more precipitation pattern, which is predicted by most of the climate models, is more for the Arctic. And many regions in the boreal zone, where boreal forests are, are pretty dry. You know, central Canada is a pretty dry area in summer. Uh, Eastern Siberia and Siberia is also pretty dry in summer. It rains less than what the plant would like to, you know, use as water from the soil to uh, grow and persist. So, in fact, uh, many areas in the boreal forest regions are relatively dry, and it is sufficient to have a few weeks of extremely dry conditions. You have a lot of fuel. The fuel is very dry, and we all know that when a fire happens, then uh, you know, it produces a lot of combustion, and a, and a lot of energy is released, and then more trees are burned nearby, and the fire propagates at a, at a very high rate. A fast look at the changes or anomalies in 2021 that I saw in your paper suggests that particular fire season was more heavily concentrated in Siberia than in northern Canada, and the year of 2023 seems the opposite, but maybe I got that wrong. Is that correct? And also, do we know why the balance of fire might shift between continents, and should we fear a, a, a year of superfire when both Siberia and northern America, they're both in record-setting fire mode? Yeah, it is true that in 21, the epicenter of the extreme fires was more in Siberia, although Northern Canada were also very high. And then in 23, most of the extreme fires were uh, in Canada and actually relatively less in, uh, in Siberia. The kind of, uh, you know, whether the drought or the fire in Canada and Siberia are synchronous or asynchronous, they happen in the same time or, you know, not in the same year, is related to uh, the famous jet stream, you know, the way air is flushed. Uh, very quickly uh, over the northern hemisphere, which bring rain and drought patterns across the boreal regions. And in some years, uh, there is kind of blockage of the circulation that creates uh, drought conditions uh, over both continents. And that's, of course, a kind of perfect storm conditions for extreme fire to happen in both regions where you have boreal forests. 
Your study finds record CO2 emissions from 2021 boreal forests. Felipe, what do you know about the 2023 fire season so far? And what do you think a similar study would find? Well, we've been looking at different indicators of fire emissions that are produced almost in near real time using uh, what we call satellite firepower. Basically, something related to the amount of energy which is released by the fire, which itself is well related with the amount of carbon. And it seems that in 23 in Canada, the amount of carbon that were released by the recent fires was extremely high, maybe two, perhaps three times higher than what it was in 21, which was already a very high year. But in Siberia, it was not as strong as what we have observed uh, in in 21. So definitely in Canada, it's really some kind of jamais vu uh, type of event. But in Siberia, it was not a particularly catastrophic fire year. We have been talking about the way extreme wildfires may push global warming even more, but that is a two-way street. Talk to us about the ways climate change leads to more boreal fires. Climate change is proceeding with very fast warming in the Arctic and the Northern Hemisphere, and it comes also with an increase in the number and the intensity of heat waves. And we all had recent experience of very long and very severe uh, uh, heat waves in, in the recent years. When you have dry and hot conditions, the first ignition will start a fire, and because there is a lot of dry fuel available, and because some trees are extremely flammable because they contain a lot of resin, like spruce trees, which are almost omnipresent in, in Canada, this creates you know, very fast-propagating, high-energy fires that turn out to emit an uh, extremely large amount of CO2 emissions, and in turn, of course, the extra amount of CO2, which is going into the atmosphere, is causing uh, uh, an acceleration of uh, the the warming. So we do have a risk that, you know, climate warming is triggering more CO2 emissions from boreal and Arctic fires, which in turn accelerate or speeds up the climate uh, warming rate. Most of us want to know, is the extreme fire behavior in the far north in the last three years a new normal or is it just a short phase that may be interspaced with lower fire years? What do you think? Well, you know, it's hard to say uh, from two or three years of extreme fires, if we have kind of passed the threshold and all the years in the future will look more like those extreme years, or if it will uh, come back to a low period. For instance, I remember that in the decade of the 2010s, there were less fires in Canada, much less than in the decade of the 2000s. So you have a lot of, you know, decadal and, of course, year-to-year variability in the climate that changes the uh, fire emissions. However, in some regions, like uh, northeastern Siberia, near the Bering Sea, you have a mixture of uh, peat, which burn occasionally, and boreal forest as well, it seems that we have, over the last five to six years, uh, quite an, an upward trend of fire that looks, let's say, unprecedented. But what is unprecedented? It's unprecedented compared to 
the longest record we have, and most of the records we have are coming from satellites. And the longest satellite we have is called Landsat. It's an American satellite. And the first year of observation by Landsat that we have for fires is in the early 80s. So we can only look back with high accuracy uh, to the early 80s in regions like Siberia, where if we want to know if fire regimes are changing or not. This is long on the one hand, but it's still, you know, short when you consider that there is a lot of high variation from year to year and also from decades to decades. Yes, before the satellites, we had to rely on a few sparse news stories from the Soviet news services, and that wasn't a very good source, but suddenly we had the big eye in the sky. People assume satellites can locate fires and measure their CO2 emissions, but it's not that easy, is it? No, it's not that easy at all, because first of all, uh, satellites, most of them do not detect the fires when you have clouds, and you often have clouds and fires burning below the clouds. So uh, detecting fires is not that easy. And then you have a lot of, you have a myriad of small fires, and of course you have very few extreme fires, and many of the small fires, they are very difficult to detect with the previous generation of satellites, because they didn't have the kind of... uh, accuracy, if you want, in their images to be able to detect uh, a lot of small fires which uh, happen on the ground. So indeed, it's very challenging, but we have now multiple lines of evidence. We have very high-resolution satellites that pass over the same point of the Earth uh, every day or every two days. We have satellites that can measure the energy emitted by the fire. And we have also satellites that can measure the amount of atmospheric pollutants like aerosol particles or carbon monoxide or even carbon dioxide which are emitted by fire. So we have you know, a constellation of different types of measurements that help us to uh, pin down the uh, amount of carbon and the areas which are affected uh, by fire during uh, uh, extreme fire years and also during normal fire years. What are you working on now? Right now, I'm working on using satellite measurements and artificial intelligence to provide new maps of forest, in particular to be able to map the height, uh, the biomass, which is very important for the fire emissions later of the forest, at a very high resolution. Because uh, we don't know very well, you know, how much carbon is contained by forest. We have some inventories, but they are relatively sparse. So trying to combine uh, data from multiple satellites with this new deep learning, artificial intelligence technologies, I hope will allow us to have, you know, uh, much more accurate uh, uh, quantification of the amount of carbon uh, which is in our forest. Well, in addition to a new map of the forests of Earth, what more do we need to understand accelerating wildfire impacts as Earth continues to warm? I think we need to combine knowledge of ecology because the most important thing is, of course, to understand how forest fire happen. And we have, I think, a very good idea or a good idea of what are the conditions that trigger the fire. But then what is important is the recovery and the damage which is caused by the fire. 
uh, after an extreme fire, how long will it take for the carbon to recover? What kind of plants will we see during the first five years, 10 years, 30 years, 100 years after the fire? And how does this change the future carbon trajectories of the forest that will recover from fires during the coming century? And that requires not only satellite observations and models, but it also requires a very detailed knowledge of the ecological processes through which ecosystem and forest ecosystem recover, heal themselves uh, after uh, being affected by large disturbance like fires. From the French Institute Pierre-Simon Laplace, we've been speaking with scientist Philippe Essier. He is author of the paper, Record High CO2 Emissions from Boreal Fires in 2021. You can find links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Philippe, thank you for sharing your time and your insight with us. Thank you. We have so many climate warnings lately, a person could do a daily climate show. We need a fully funded professional 24-hour cable and net channel reporting on nothing but the climate emergency. Instead of the latest gossip about Trump, Swift, or Cameron, the Climate Network would show these freak floods in Italian towns, the burned-out crops, and the massive fires. What happened in Acapulco after that city was blown out by the instant hurricane? Is the North African heat wave adding to unrest? I mean, it was like 35 degrees in Gaza the other day. Did you know the Arctic has been overheated and loaded with abnormal amounts of methane? Talk to the slum dwellers in Rio during the feels-like 137 degrees Fahrenheit heat, 58.5 C reported by ABC News. Follow up for a death count later. Tell it like it is. Sure, we could cover the good news about solar and wind installations, the bright ideas for a smart grid, the rare politicians pushing for a survivable Earth. Instead of arresting anyone who protests the climate catastrophe, calling them terrorists, Climate TV can interview them. Could we hear actual green voices, unedited, unframed, instead of oil companies expressing their love for the planet? Where are the climate crisis lines for mental health? Where is the emergency? Here is a couple of story ideas. You heard the Arctic is warming four times faster than global average. When scientists at University College London plugged that into existing climate models, surprise! Those don't go past this guide rails of 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees C warming come eight years faster than we were told. With Arctic warming included, they found this planet will be consistently 1.5 degrees hotter than pre-industrial by the year 2031 and 2 degrees and climbing by 2050. That's just seven years away for 1.5 degrees in warming all the time. That's the temperatures where tipping points tip. Sort of good news, countries and industries can no longer lie about their greenhouse gas emissions. A new sensor aboard the International Space Station can identify point sources of greenhouse gas emissions. Where previous satellite measurements identified big gas fields as sources of methane, this new technology can pinpoint who and where. In their first 30 days of its operation, demonstrating its ability to track previously undetected emissions across the Middle East and Central Asia, 
The researchers identified 65 sources of carbon dioxide and methane emissions, almost entirely from oil and gas sector, as well as from landfills, treatment facilities, and power plants. This news was published by the journal Science Advances. Find links in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Our climate TV station could thrive on headlines like this in Science Alert. Physicists warn Earth could feasibly descend into chaos. Author Michelle Starr says the impact of human activity on the Earth system could result in unpredictable chaos from which there is no return, physicists have calculated. They worry about a phase transition found in many operations in this world. Oh, those egg-headed physicists, what would they know? Like that Einstein guy. How about this one? Projected change in the burden of excess cardiovascular deaths associated with extreme heat by mid-century, 2036 to 2065, in the contiguous United States. That was a paper published October 30th. According to the American Heart Association, heat-related cardiovascular deaths in the U.S. may more than double within decades. That's what they say. Extreme heat kills people with heart conditions. We don't need to wait until the 2040s. No doubt that is happening right now in South America. Here is another one worth an in-depth story. Extreme weather is outpacing even the worst-case scenarios of our forecasting models. That was published October 30th in The Conversation by Ravindra Jayaratne. On October 25th, in 24 hours, a tropical depression became Cat 5 Hurricane Otis slamming Acapulco. Sorry, I, I can't just let that one go. None of the forecasting models predicted that. It's not possible. And it happened. Will they rebuild it all? The United Nations University issued a report, Interconnected Disaster Risks. It's more on cascading tipping points in the Earth system. I have an interview with the author, conducted by filmmaker Nick Breeze, coming up on this show. Things are so upside down, even good news has a bad side. Take the great pollution cleanup in China. The Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago runs a service called the Air Quality Life Index, or AQLI. They write, Despite significant increases in particulate pollution in many regions of the world, global pollution has declined since 2013. That decline is due entirely to China's success in steeply reducing pollution. Since declaring a war against pollution in 2014, after the country experienced some of its highest pollution levels, Swift policy actions led pollution in China to decline by 42.3% between 2013 and 2021. That extended the average person's life expectancy by 2.2 years if these reductions in pollution are sustained. Beijing province experienced the largest decline in pollution, dropping 56.2% in just eight years. The average person living there could expect to live 4.2 years longer. The global decline in pollution in recent years is due entirely to China. That is great news for over a billion people in China. It is also part of the aerosol reduction that reveals our true level of heating. Without that cooling smog, without the sulfur and ship emissions, 
more of the actual warming arises on the Earth, like in Rio or the next killer heat domes coming in 2024. The World Meteorological Organization is finally waking up to the climate emergency. They say greenhouse gas emissions are still rising, with no signs of stopping. I have an interview with a WMO spokesman coming up. Stay tuned as we record from a world in trouble, still hoping for a great awakening. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world.